Podcast, and thank you for joining us today. We're in a series on Sundays going through the Gospel of Mark, but we also want to encourage you, if you live in the area, go to brave.church slash homechurch and check out our home churches that are gathering together around these teachings throughout the week. We believe the kind of church Jesus came to start is more than a crowd. It's friends on a mission living life together. Another great way to connect further is through social media, where there is content designed to inspire and inform you. Here's this week's talk. Okay, I am so excited. We are starting a new series uh, called The People of Worship. And uh, everybody worships something, isn't that right? And uh, you don't have to go to church for any length of time to already know that we start, when you hear the word worship, you always start associating it immediately with music. But this is a worship series that's not about music. And we have great music here, but that's not what worship is about. And so most people, when they hear the word worship, they think of, you know, singing songs on Sunday. But worship involves so much more than a program or liturgy or a style. I grew up uh, in a denomination that taught that they taught their version of true worship. That's what every denomination does. Here's, this is true worship. And it all had to do with what happened on Sunday morning. In fact, they called it a Sunday service. Why they called it a Sunday service, I have no idea, but that's what they called it. So at Brave, we gather on Sundays to worship, to teach the scriptures, to build community uh, around a common vision. We call them gatherings. Why? Because we gather every Sunday at 8.30, 10, and 11.30. And we gather every week in small groups called home churches. We don't service at 8.30, 10, and 11.30. We gather here at 8.30, 10, and 11.30. In the church style I grew up in, uh, there was this unstated goal that we would experience every spiritual gift listed in Scripture every Sunday morning. So there was a lot of pressure. And so uh, we would keep singing around and round and round, and we would keep preaching round and round and round until somebody got worked up enough and brave enough to use or try out one of their spiritual gifts on us. And then we called that, when that moment would happen, we called it the Spirit was moving, uh, which was odd because the Spirit only moved through the same people nearly every Sunday. We knew their names. Here she goes, right? I mean, as kids, we go, okay, we haven't had church yet. She hasn't done you know what. Okay, he's going to do you know what. Okay, here we go, on cue. We didn't have church until we had done certain things, and it took on average three hours to get it done. So be grateful, people. (laughs) To this day, I can't sit for long periods of time on my you-know-what. And it didn't end on Sunday morning. We had to come right back on Sunday night because we had to do the exact same thing all over again, except it was dark outside. In fact, anything could happen on Sunday nights, and sometimes it did. You know, uh, what kind of church worship style did you grow up in? Perhaps uh, Brave is your first worship experience, or you're just here checking things out. We're so glad that you're here. These next few weeks together, we're going to look at what it means 
to be a people of worship. We're going to take a broader look at this subject, and we're going to begin by reading a passage from the Gospel of Mark. And if you didn't get your notes on the way in, uh, you'll, you'll want to just raise your hand and the ushers will get those notes out to you. Uh, you can follow along in your Bible, on your iPhone or phone, or uh, on, in your programs there. Okay, we're going to Mark chapter 11, and we're going to begin reading in verse 1. It says, And as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this, say, the Lord needs it and will send it back here shortly. Verse 4, they went out and found a colt or a, or a young donkey outside in the street, and they tied, it was tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered, as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks or coats over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went out ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. With this passage, we come to the final week of Jesus' life and his public ministry. It's called Passion Week. This year is 30 AD. The month is the first Jewish month, Nisan, and the arrival day is on the 10th day, and the crucifixion will follow on the 14th day, and all of that matters because God has established a very exact timetable that he's following. It's the beginning of the Passover week. And on Friday will be the day when tens and thousands of lambs, Passover lambs, will be slain, none of which will be able to solve the problem of humanity's sin. It was a Band-Aid type solution in the Old Testament law that didn't work. However, on the Passover week, there will be this one sacrifice for sin that will take away all of our sins for everyone who has ever believed throughout all of human history, and that one sacrifice, that one true lamb, will bring salvation, offer salvation to the entire world. But this passage, this day, begins with a very strange event. It's called the triumphal entry, but it's really not. There's actually uh, no coronation uh, or of a true king that's going on in this story. What appears to be happening is not happening. But it looks like it's happening, but it's not happening. Real coronations aren't humble. Uh, they're not unexpected. Invitations are sent out. Everybody knows it's going to happen. It doesn't spontaneously occur. It's not just like this organic start of a triumphal entry and then the coronation of a king. It's, it was so strange how this all started. Even more how the day ended. You, you don't normally declare someone to be your king and then take it back in a few days and try to kill him. 
And so as they approach Jerusalem, there's this entourage that's growing around Jesus, and uh, Jesus is this miracle worker. That's what they're excited about. And the word is getting out that Jesus has recently raised Lazarus from the dead. So all of these pilgrims are coming into the town. They're hearing the story. It was a true miracle that Lazarus was raised from the dead, and there was plenty of evidence that first he was dead. Uh, They had a funeral. They put him in the tomb. And he had been in there for days. But now he's living. And he's living in Bethany in their own village. And they can see him. This is a big deal. And so people are really excited about this guy named Jesus. And they're very enthusiastic. And so as they ascend the hill towards Jerusalem, what happens next can only be designed by God. It's not a legitimate exaltation of his son as the savior of the world. But rather to incite his enemies at exactly the right time. You see, prior to this, there was no plan to crucify or put Jesus on trial by the Jews. The public event that happened on this day forced something. It was a divinely intentional beginning of a well-planned seven-day strategy. Jesus has been living in obscurity. He's not seeking or wanting any public attention for three full years. Imagine that. He even asked people after he would heal them or deliver them, please don't tell anybody. He's doing all of this good and he's trying to keep it on the down low. And then suddenly after three years of this, on this day, at this time, he allows what appears to be a spontaneous, if it wasn't for all the details that are given here, a very grand entrance into Jerusalem. It was on a day we traditionally call Palm Sunday, although some people think that it was actually on a Monday, Palm Monday, but regardless, the largest crowd possible was now present so that Jesus' enemies would feel threatened by this public display. And later, they would want to execute him later in the week. There was no plan on this day to execute him. It's estimated that 2 million people were in Jerusalem at this time. The crowds around him had begun to gather now by the hundreds of thousands. This was the right time and it was the right place for this to agitate his enemies so that Jesus would die later in the week. So this is God's perfect timing. The city's swelling with pilgrims. They're all converging on Jerusalem for the Passover and now they're all hearing. They're all hearing about this guy that raised up Lazarus from the dead and Lazarus is walking around. He lives over there in Bethany. You can go meet him. And then when you collaborate the other readings in the gospel, you find that the chief priests, the spiritual leaders, heard about Lazarus being raised from the dead, and immediately they got defensive, and they decided to, you know what? They decided to try to re-kill Lazarus. I mean, like, how hard-hearted is that, you know? When, When you don't even deny that he's raised from the dead, you just try to kill him again, right? Verse two, when Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. How did Jesus know all of that? He knew all of that. It's because he's God in human form. And God knows all of that because he's omniscient meaning he's all-knowing. We worship a God who is all-knowing. He knows every donkey, every young colt, every animal, every person, 
Everything that can be known, everything that exists, he knows. He knows everything. He knows everything there is to know about you and I. Verse 7, when they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he said on it, instead of riding in on a horse of war like a conquering king did in those days, he rides on a donkey, a young colt. Why? Why are we giving this specific detail? It's very similar to his mother Mary riding in a young colt, a donkey, into Bethlehem. Pastor Samuel, uh, a while back, talked about how there are hyperlinks in Scripture, some linking prophecies and their fulfillment. This is one of those moments. You see, 500 years, five centuries earlier, the prophet Zechariah prophesied these words, Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is amazing stuff to get this level of accuracy. Wait, there's more. In the book of Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, it says, from the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the Messiah, the king, the ruler comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. That's 483 years from the degree of Artaxerxes to rebuild Jerusalem, which was in 445 BC, until the actual arrival of the Messiah. Now, if you do the calendar work on all of that, 483 years from that decree, it lands on this exact day when Jesus is entering Jerusalem on a donkey. God's timing is perfect in your life, in my life, and in Jesus' life. God's timing is perfect right down to the smallest detail of our lives. And God always arrives exactly when he plans to. Verse 8, many people see their cloaks on the road while others spread branches they cut in the fields. Why would they spread their coats on the road? It was an old ancient gesture, a custom to show submission it was, it, was, it was as if to say, uh, here, here's my coat. Here, this represents me. You can walk on me. You can step on me. I'm below your feet. Kings were always elevated, and people were always considered under their feet. This was a way to symbolize, I am submissive to you. At least they were on that day. They were willing to submit to Jesus as long as he was coming into Jerusalem to overthrow Rome. The palm branches were symbols of salvation and joy. We're excited. This could be the day you're going to overthrow Rome, so we're stoked. Verse 9, those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. They were shouting at him. Now think about this. This wasn't like soft Easter music going on in the background, right? This was their shouting Hosanna, which means save us. They're chanting, save us, save us, save us, save us now, deliver us now. And they were shouting words from the Psalm 118, which is the conqueror psalm or the psalm of salvation. They were shouting at the top of their voices. The crowd is going wild. 
A few hundred start chanting, Hosanna, save us, save us, deliver us. And now literally thousands of people are doing this. It's like doing the wave at a ball game. And it's gaining momentum. And everything that they shouted was true. Everything they shouted was scriptural from the Old Testament. But none of what they wanted or thought was what God came to do. This is God's king but it's not his time. Notice what happens after all this. After all of this, at the end of the day, verse 11, this is how this big, huge mob, how it all ends. Jesus entered Jerusalem, went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. Is that anticlimactic or what? <laughs> well, what a strange ending to this big, Scene. What, what's he doing? Well, you'll get to learn about that next week. Growing up, what I experienced uh, in the little church that I grew up uh, in was not always true worship. There was always sincerity, but there was not always true worship. In fact, there was a lot of stuff that was, well, it was just more about us than had anything to do with God. This event is seen by many people as an epic moment of worship, but it's not worship. They were shouting and telling Jesus what they wanted Jesus to do, and that's not true worship at all. I believe God wants us to be a people of worship, but it starts with us understanding who God is and who we are not and what we're created for. Notice what they were doing really looked like worship. They put down their coats or their cloaks. They cut and laid, you know, palm branches. They shouted. Lots of people shout in church. And they're shouting Hosanna. A lot of people do that on Palm Sunday in their traditional services that they have. Palm Sunday, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us, save us. They even quoted scriptures out loud like, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our Father. They all sounded and looked so spiritual on this day, and yet none of it was true worship. In fact, for centuries... On Palm Sunday, churches have planned gatherings that have romanticized these people's worship as if this is what worship looks like, this glorious Hosanna of singing, save us. All of this was based on a passage that actually misrepresents true worship, a worship we should not hope to emulate in our lives. So today, I want to answer three questions you can follow along in your program notes. Number one, what worship is not, what worship is, and how can we be confident in our worship? One, what worship is not. They shouted because they thought God was behind their agenda. They shouted, save us, save us now from Rome. Save us in the way that we want to be saved. Come on, be honest. Have you ever worshiped because you're hoping God is going to do something for you? Okay, there. Wow, a lot of you. Okay. But it wasn't God's agenda what they were shouting at him to do, what they were worshiping him to do. He wanted to save us from all of our sins, not just the Jews and not just from Rome. God had a much bigger plan. In fact, write this down. Worship is not shouting at God to do what you want. That seems simple enough, right? But you'd be surprised 
Throughout history, people have committed some of the ugliest sins done in the name of God and claiming true acts of worship and devotion to God. Hitler killing Jews was in the name of Jesus. He felt like he was doing that in the name of Jesus. Crusades with so-called Christians who killed heathens, slave owners in America, using the Bible and twisting it incorrectly to justify their own greed and hate. The Aryan Brotherhood and all racism in the name of Christianity. The list is endless of people who have done and said things that they called worship, but it was not worship, and it's still not worship, and it's false worship. People have divided over the years. And then they minimized. It's like, our church is the best church. By the way, Brave's not the best church. If you want to go to the best one, I don't know which one it is, but try and find it out there. But anyway, <laughs> people for years, it's all about us and we're the best. And people have divided and they minimize and put down other forms of worship and liturgy and style. And you're not like us. And if you did it this way, it would be better. And at the root of all those religious systems is a false belief that goes like this. If we do it the right way, if we do it the right way or a certain way, we will get what we want from God. That's not true worship. It's a false worship. Jesus prayed, not my will, but your will be done. True worship. Something we get worship wrong. Sometimes we get worship wrong because we completely miss the heart and the focus of God's values. And other times it's just because we're, our view of worship is just way too small. We have too small a view of worship. When we put more emphasis on our style, more than on knowing Jesus, we're worshiping ourselves, not our creator. Any follower of Jesus should be able to sit in any kind of liturgy and any kind of worship service that's honoring Jesus and get something out of it. Come on, let's mature. Or let's not. Okay, anyway. <laughs> it's not about the style, it's about Jesus. It's not about the level of the music or the sound or the lights or any of that. It's not about any of that. It's about Jesus. Worshiping God is an emotional experience. I love it. I love to dance. I love to move. I love to clap. I love worship. I love the worship that we have here in the songs. But when the act of worship is measured purely by a level of emotion only, we're no longer worshiping God. When you're the only one doing something that no one else is doing, it's no longer about worshiping God, it's about you. You're drawing the attention to you. These people shouted and they prayed and they bowed down before the Son of God and the next day they went out and plotted murder. And I think our society and our culture is still pretty much fed up with that. When gatherers of Jesus come and they sing their songs and they get emotional, they get it, and there's nothing wrong with getting emotional, and they experience God and they do all these things, and then they go out and plot murder on Monday, gossip about their boss, complain about everybody, and act just like everybody else. When our view of worship is confined to one hour a week and a series of songs strung together, and that's it, 
Our life's at risk. It's becoming dangerously out of alignment. And you, and you know what happens when the front end of your car gets out of alignment and you let go of the steering wheel? It begins to drift. It begins to get out of balance. We need a bigger view of what worship is as a people of worship. Worship is not getting God to do something that we want him to do. That's drift. And it's not confined to an emotional one-hour good worship songs on Sunday. Liturgy means this. It's a prescribed ritual for public worship. Have you ever experienced a worship style different than your own? What style or approach are you most comfortable with? When I was growing up, there was this one particular big group of people, I won't name them, that used to say that this other big group of people have no character. And then that group of people used to say that that other group of people have no power. One group would focus on the fruit of the Spirit, character, and the other would focus on the gifts of the Spirit, power. Today, we all tend to equate being moved by music as being moved by the Spirit, but they're not the same. What is worship? Number two, worship is, worship is when your spirit, your heart, responds to God in surrender and obedience to his will, not to a musical tone. In fact, some sentimental or introspective songs hinder worship because they take the spotlight off of God and they focus too much on our feelings. Worship is about, oh, magnify the Lord, not, oh, magnify my feelings. Look in your notes. The essence of worship is giving our God our heart and our mind, our thoughts, our thinking, our intellect, our reason, and our soul and our emotions and our strength to God in all you say and do. That's so much bigger than songs on Sunday to give my heart, my mind, my soul, my strength to God in all I say and all I do. Webster's Dictionary in 1828 wrote, worship is to honor with extravagant love and extreme submission. Worship is submitting your lifestyle to the authority of God's word and honoring God with your words and with your actions. It's about your entire life. It's about the person that you bring to work, that the way you act and speak at work is consistent with the Bible and the honoring of Jesus and who he is. It's who you bring into your family and the way you behave and communicate in your own family. And it's not that you're perfect, but there's a, a convicting work of the Holy Spirit that when I need to say I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It's not this just out of control family system. It's who you bring with your friends. It's, it's what you and your friends do together. It's what you do when you go and play that you honor God in all you say and do. There's not a disconnect. I'm over here and I'm doing this at church and I'm over here and I'm all of a sudden I'm, I'm the wild whatever. The truth, true worship means putting God's values first in the way you live. It permeates everything about you. We are a people created to worship God. And when we worship, life gets better. It gets freer. 
That's what Jesus brings us into. There's a spirit of freedom that happens as we let go of other insecurities and needs and flesh and pride and darkness and anxiety and worry and depression. He brings us into freedom as we worship. God desires for us to be a people of worship. Number three, how can we be confident in our worship? First, let me say, any style of worship can be meaningful if your heart is transformed into a greater love of Jesus. How can we be confident in the direction of our worship? Our passage today, to me, I found a few things that points to this. First, when we surrender the timing to God. Surrender, that's an unpopular word. I mean, how many want to surrender, right? It's disliked almost as much as the word submission. You want, to be, you want to ruin a party, yell surrender or submit. It, it just implies, like surrender, it implies like you're losing, worst yet, you're losing control, giving up control. In our region and area, we do not want to give up control. And many followers of Jesus would, well, we would prefer to talk about winning or succeeding or conquering rather than talking about yielding, submitting, obeying, and surrendering. But surrendering to God is the heart of worship, true worship. Offering ourselves as living sacrifices to God, dedicating our lives as a people of worship to honoring Him and pleasing Him. Now, surrender isn't losing your identity. It doesn't mean you go into some neutral vegetation mode. Surrender isn't, you know, repressing your personality to be somebody you're not. In fact, C.S. Lewis puts it this way. The more we let God take us over, the more truly ourselves we become because he made us. He invented all the different people that, that you and I are were intended to be. It's when I turn to Christ, when I give up myself to his personality, that I first begin to have a real personality of my own. By giving yourself completely to him, your worship brings God's pleasure. Have you done that? Are you doing that? Surrender comes in many ways. But one of those ways that we see in this story is surrendering to God's timing, abiding in his timing, knowing that he knows everything. Therefore, I can wait for him. Isaiah put it this way, for since the world began, no eye has seen, no ear has heard a God like you who works for those who wait. That would require patience and surrender and yielding. And when we worship, we surrender and we wait for his timing. Have you ever wanted God to do something like right now? You know what I mean? Like, I've got some things I'd like God to do, like, right now. Like, today would be good, right? Worship means I surrender my right now. I submit. I submit the timing of everything in my life. I'm going to trust you. Another way that we can be confident in our worship, write this down, is when we are at peace in conflict. Sometimes conflict leads us to clarity about who Christ is. God always has a plan, and it may not be your plan, but sometimes God allows conflict to reveal who he is. 
and bring a peace right in the middle of your conflict. When we surrender the timing to God, when we are at peace in conflict, lastly, when we trust God with the outcome. The deepest levels of worship are when you praise him in spite of your uncertainties. That takes faith. Trusting God when it feels like and it looks like he's not coming through. Have you ever asked a spouse or a friend, well, do you think God's going to do this? And your friend goes, I don't know. And you go, that's not what you're supposed to say. You're supposed to like encourage me. But what about when you have that death of your vision or your dream? How many times do our plans unexpectedly die? Only for God to resurrect a new beginning. Part of true worship is when I surrender the timing of a need being met and being at peace through the conflict I'm going through and trusting him with whatever the outcome is. Rick Warren said, your most profound and intimate experiences of worship will likely be in your darkest days. When you're brokenhearted, when your heart is broken, and when you feel abandoned, and when you're out of options, and when the pain is great, and you turn to God alone. I don't know what you're all going through today, or what you're going through, but but I do know this. There's a king who died for your resurrection, the resurrection of your dreams and your visions, and he's worthy of your praise. Are you facing darkness? He makes the darkness tremble. That's how big he is. Are you facing death? He overcame it already. We all win over that one. Are you facing illness? Again, he overcame it already. We all ultimately win over that one. Do you have a need? He can provide it. Worship him because of who he is, not what he can do for you. And as Webster Dictionary says, honor him with with an extravagant love and extreme submission. That's true worship. That's really healthy to learn. Extreme submission is a really good thing in your soul. I want to invite the band out. And as they're coming out, I'm going to pray a prayer And if you resonate with this prayer, you can make this prayer your own right where you're at. You know, I was thinking for some of us today, Jesus is calling you to worship, but it's actually the opposite feeling of what you're experiencing or even wanting to do right now. You know what I mean? Sometimes it's like, it it took all I could do to get here. And to actually participate in worship, I would just rather do this, right? And yet it may be the sacrifice that God's asking. It may be the submissive will of your will to his will to say, you know what? You're worthy of praise and honor regardless of what's going on in my life. For others of you, he's calling you to receive him as the one who can save you. You can call out today and say, save us. And he'll know exactly what you mean. He came to save you from your sins. He's the only one that can do that. And so I'm going to pray a prayer. And if you want, you can make this prayer your own. Would you bow your heads with me? Dear Heavenly Father, I know that that I do not want to spend my life worshiping myself. 
that I need a savior, someone greater than me. Please forgive me for my sins. I surrender my will to your will and I trust you with the outcome. I invite Jesus Christ into my life as my savior and as my my Lord, my whole life controller. And I ask you to save me from the effects of my sins. I receive you as the Lord of my life and I give you full control. I trust you. Thank you for forgiving me and giving me the gift of eternal life. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's our hope that you will let this message go deep within your soul and allow Jesus to do the work that only He can do. We also want to encourage you to partner with us here at Brave. Go to brave.church and become a regular giver and be part of how God is using this message to help people find and follow Jesus.